All right, this will be the final. Checking up the score. Okay, Warriors are up by eight with a minute and a half to go, so they should have no problem closing that out. Okay, now we can relax. <laughs> So, um, so maybe some reflections on, on step six. I'm going to actually move myself over here a little bit. There we go. So step six in the 12 steps says, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And, uh, you know, I, as soon as I uh, read or reflect on the words, I, I quickly get out my Dharma translator um, you know, and, and it isn't so much the words, and, and I think you know, this is something. You know, those of you who have heard me speak or read me know that. You know what I'm really trying to look for, and dig down into is what is the process we're talking about here. Um, the language is is. Uh, Kind of, you know, Protestant and uh, a little harsh defects of character and all that. Um, but you know, it's pointing to something that's important in the process of growth, of spiritual growth, or personal growth, or psychological growth, or in recovery. This because it's got the, the light that draws the eye. So that's where I think the beginning of the step we were entirely ready is is pointing to the to the aspect of the process that step six is addressing, being ready to change. not easy to get ready to change. It's not re- easy to be ready to change. Uh, and, and I think readiness itself is uh, maybe the most important aspect of change. Uh, once we're ready, you know, there are many resources to draw on. Most of us know, if we don't know what we need to do, we know how to find out what we need to do or figure it out. But it's the it's being ready, and and again, readiness also is something that's impermanent. We're ready for a while, and then we're not ready. You know, we're willing to change, and then we stop being willing. So it's something that requires kind of a a regular. Checking in with ourselves, where, you know, where am I at? Am I, am I, really open right now, or am I holding off the possibility of change? Where, what, what level is my willingness? You know, when when we find ourselves, and you know, I I find this a lot with people who are resisting uh, getting into recovery that they often kind of blame the 12 steps. Oh, well, I don't believe in God, or I don't really believe I'm powerless, or, uh, you know, I don't 
like uh, I don't think I have defects of character or whatever. They, you know, and and I kind of, I'm kind of like, okay, that's fine. You don't have to believe any of that. You don't have to agree with any of it. But you don't have to keep doing what you're doing. You know, that's not a reason to stay in your addiction. <laughs> it's not a reason to go drink because you don't believe in God. Like who cares? You know. You know, I mean, it, it really sort of doesn't... And I've heard, had people say that to me. Well, I couldn't get sober because I didn't have a higher power. Huh? What? I, you know, and, and I think that... I do think that sometimes that's the message that gets passed on. Or it gets communicated or interpreted that way. Sometimes in meetings or certain individuals might claim that that's necessary. Um, You know, it reminds me, just peripherally, <laughs> of I was teaching in uh, Colorado one time at the Shambhala Mountain Center, and and someone said, uh, my first sponsor said, um, to meditate, just read the Bible slowly. <laughs> okay, that would probably work. I mean, I'm not, I have no objection to that. I just thought, well... We've got some other approaches, you know, that we prefer. But, uh, you know, people, uh, one of the beautiful things about the 12-step world is that there are no authorities. And one of the big risks of the 12-step world is that there are no authorities. (laughs) Uh, And so you have to kind of sort out who you're going to listen to. So, so this first of all, to see where our resistance is, and you know, certainly, this applies to recovery and getting sober, getting clean, or whatever your program is, being ready. And I'd say that, you know, step one requires us being ready. You know, there's a readiness we have to have for that, right? We wouldn't even get to step six if we weren't ready to deal with. The addiction. So step six is addressing something else, what it calls defects of character, and it's so it's coming in the as part of the inventory process. Step six, and so I know some of you are deeply, you know, familiar with the twelve steps, and some of you are less knowledgeable about them. So I think if you don't mind, a little bit of review that. You know, in step three, we turn our will and our lives over, so it's kind of, you know, really engaging in the process. So step four is when we take the uh, searching fearless moral inventory. And step five, we share that with somebody. So the step six comes after that. That, okay, we've looked at the inventory, but it, and we've shared it, but the implication is we haven't really done anything about it yet. But step six and seven are supposed to be the ones where we do something about the inventory. In step six, we become ready. Step seven, we engage in the process. We humbly ask God to remove our defects or shortcomings. But let's, we can wait until July to deal with that. <laughs> so this is specifically about the things that are in, uncovered 
in the recovery process, in the, in the inventory process. Uh, the implication being that recovery, as opposed to being clean or being sober, is something that requires more than just stopping using the substance or the particular addictive behavior. It means that recovery involves, you know, a, a spirit, psycho-spiritual, I like that term, psycho-spiritual uh, transformation, which is what step 12 is referring to when it says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So right in step six, we're right in the middle of that process. We're ready to, not, to, to move forward with really looking at all those qualities that, that uh, you know, are, they're, they're associated with our addiction, but they're not necessarily the addictive behavior itself. And if they're not dealt with, they're there as potential triggers for relapse. So whether it's anger or fear, you know, uh, depression, whether it's, uh, you know, the various forms of self-centeredness, you know, uh, seeking out, exploiting others, shall we say, you know, uh, sexual exploitation, um, just the whole direction of our lives really has to get looked at. And the whole habitual personality and personal uh, mental, behavioral, speech habits. So this idea of, uh, of defects of character, I think uh, that's another phrase, so entirely ready to have, well, um, shall I go to God first? I guess I'll go to God. Uh, Entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. So, what we're really engaging here, well, I I shouldn't say really, (laughs) because I don't want to claim to have, you know, the truth. But my understanding of this process is that what we are, when we're talking about God, we're talking about the existing powers of the universe, which in Buddhism we call the Dharma. And that, that these powers, when invoked in a skillful way, are part of and really kind of the engines for this transformation that we're talking about. So when we talk about the Dharma and the powers of the Dharma, the, the key aspect of that is the law of karma, which simply says actions bring results. So if we want to change, we have to change our actions. We, According to the Buddha, we are the results of our karma. The way he says, I am born of my karma, I am heir to my karma, I am the owner of my karma. So that's kind of who I am. Now, this word karma is often misunderstood. 
kind of came to our culture in the 60s and with more of the Hindu version meaning fate. But the word karma just means action. And when we talk about the law of karma, we're talking about actions have results. Now, the reason people talk about that as fate is because what's happening to you right now, to some degree, is a result of your past actions. So, to some extent, this present moment is predetermined. The only way you can change the future, though, is by taking actions in this moment. So we keep creating karma moment by moment. A couple other things about karma. There are three forms of karma. Thoughts, words, and deeds. So if we're going to change, we're not just talking about, oh, I'm not going to lift this and smoke this or inject this anymore. That's behavior. But I'm going to also speak differently And even more critically, I'm going to try to think differently, which is what we're learning to do when we meditate, when we observe our minds and see what it does and then let go of those thoughts, right? So that's that's one of the key aspects of meditation. We're actually remaking our karma as we meditate. If we're, I'll say this, if we're doing it right, there's quotes around that. But, but I think that's important to understand. You know, we can sit down and, and I do this often, <laughs> meditate, and I just space out and, and recreate my normal thought patterns. So we're really only doing this work when we're observing the thoughts and we're let go, letting go of the thoughts when we're coming back to the breath, when we're seeing the patterns of thought. The, the Buddha says in one sutta that uh, if we practice in this way, we'll become the master of the courses of thought. It's a really interesting phrase. And I ought to, uh, I ought to um, look for some other people's ideas about what it means. I have my own ideas about what it means, though, so I'll, I'll give you that. I'm... Uh, not a scholar, but I have some sense that what he's saying is that as we become very aware of our own minds and our own thoughts, we'll be able to actually choose the thoughts we have or all of our thinking will be intentional. You know, right now, most of yours and my thinking is unintentional. And that's why you find yourself spacing out and you're thinking about stuff you didn't mean to think about. Sometimes we have thoughts we don't even want to have. Maybe a lot of times. But if we are the master of the courses of thought, you're using your thoughts only in productive ways. You're you're choosing. They're not just kind of bubbling up through the subconscious. There's an intentionality behind them. And so as we become more mindful of our thoughts, we start to do this, not all the time, but more of the time. And then there are certain things that we reflect upon. The Buddha, you know, suggests that we reflect upon impermanence, 
that we reflect upon compassion, upon suffering, uh, and reflect upon the Dharma. And this, just that in itself, changes our uh, experience of life, our understanding of life. When we see things through the lens of Dharma rather than through the lens of ego or self, then the world looks very different. You know, one of the thing, one of my you know jokes about the news is, oh, it's the news front page of the newspaper: greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, that's and that's what the Buddha said. Those are the three poisons, right? And that that drive human beings if they're not conscious. And so, instead of looking at the paper and getting all upset, oh God, there's this war, and that person got shot, and this person stole this money and you know we just we see oh that's just if, if you see it's greed hatred and delusion then you have this bigger context like oh it's humans doing what humans do it, we don't get so caught in the story because we're seeing it in this uh, we're seeing the um, the real meaning of it or the the patterns that are being expressed you know, when you get caught up in the details, uh, every, every little thing becomes this drama, just like in our own heads, right? We, you start thinking about what... It's the same thing we do with our minds, okay? Because what's in the newspaper is also in your head. Because where do you think all those people came from and all their actions came from? They came from their heads. So <laughs> we do the same thing. So you can watch greed, hatred, and delusion in your own head. You can notice, oh, here I go. Oh, I'm worrying about, like, I want to make more money. Oh, wait, I really have a resentment towards that person. Oh, you know, I have this, uh, I imagine that if I just, you know, get this new car that I'm going to be happy. Whatever, you know, and you you start to see, oh, I'm doing the same thing. So this is how I create my own suffering. So if I'm going to change, I can't, maybe I can't become a master of the courses of my thought. But maybe I could become like an apprentice of the courses of thought. So that I'm somebody who notices from time to time. And I say, oh, there I go. Oh, oh. And, you know, a good clue that you're caught up in greed, hatred, and delusion is that you're upset, you know, or you're bothered. You know, you're uptight, you're angry, whatever. Oh, there's some thought here that I'm attached to. So, uh, that's... That's where this transformation, that's where the... So, if God is Dharma, and Dharma refers partly to... I'm just going to rewind now, kind of get us back to where I started with this. And, And... If God is Dharma, and Dharma, in terms of transformation, is talking about the law of karma, then this is really kind of the key starting point. For addicts, the key starting point is stopping doing that external action, right? I mean, we know, like, nothing happens if we don't do that. So that's the the deeds. And then the thinking. And the inventory process, of course, looks at both. It looks at the actions we've done and it also looks at the thinking behind them. 
Um, and I would say that one way of characterizing mindfulness meditation is that it's a kind of psychic inventory or you know mental inventory, meditative inventory. Um, so one of the, so the, so there's this power of karma that depends upon thoughts, words, and deeds being skillfully, you know, skillful thoughts, words, and deeds. There's the power of mindfulness itself. The only way to be aware of what I'm thinking is being mindful. So that's one of the aspects of what I call Dharma God, right? the power of mindfulness. None of this can happen if there's no awareness. I mean, I can, you know, you, you can just, you can start to act differently by just sort of making uh, a vow or some kind of a commitment. But if there isn't awareness, if there isn't some degree of mindfulness, then the habitual patterns are likely to kick back in. And the, you know, in terms of relapse, you know, if, if you're not aware of the triggers arising in the mind, you're going to be, it's, the door is just going to open. You know, you're, there's not going to be any kind of moment of catching it. So it's not enough to just form a discipline or a commitment. I mean, this is why, one of the reasons why uh, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous said, you know, we tried every different kind of vow and, and uh, you know, self-knowledge availed us nothing. You know, they go through all the kind of different ways of trying to control it or, or uh, you know, get on the, uh, on the wagon and, but there has to be something more. Uh, there, uh, awareness has to be brighter, clearer, sharper. Clear, um, you know, able to see. So the power of thoughts, words, and deeds, the power, which depends upon the the power of mindfulness, the power of compassion. We talk about loving kindness. Uh, this sort of this array of practices: loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. I, I think loving for me, loving kindness and compassion are kind of the the key uh, tools in in, uh, in the recovery process. Uh, in that in that array, because there's such a tendency to self judgment with addicts. Such a tendency to self-hatred. A lot of people find that when they discover the these Brahma Viharas or the loving kindness and compassion practices, that something else starts to open up for them. And it's it also, as with some of the other practices and some of these other things I'm talking about, it also uh, well, it requires, but I guess it also evokes. Uh, a bit of a disidentification. The, the practice of compassion is founded 
in the understanding that all beings suffer. Now, this is kind of, uh, you know, a core Buddhist teaching and tenet. And that, and so in our practice, one of the things we are observing is our own suffering. But as we watch that and see that it's not unique to us, we become more conscious and awake to that universal suffering. That then allows for another turning back towards ourselves with compassion. People sometimes get stuck on thinking, well, I'm, you know, I I know all these bad things I've done and these bad thoughts. uh, And so it's hard for me to love myself. But at a certain point, as we start to just, when we can sort of look at the world and, and become, have less of a sense of sort of separation, and more of a sense of, oh, well, you know, what makes me so uniquely special that I'm not worthy of compassion and all other beings are? It just doesn't make any sense at a certain point. And, and again, there, there's something inherent to the meditation process which weakens the attachment to self or to ego. So, quite simply, as the, as the mind becomes more quiet, the chatter of ego becomes less dominant. And naturally, what fills that space is this more impersonal sense of awareness that then doesn't feel so much like I. There isn't sort of so much um, self-reference in our our, um, experience. And that's where I think that connection, you know, first of all, when that self-centeredness or, uh, gets quieter, the realization of our interconnectedness becomes more and more obvious. There's a natural opening, the heart opening we talk about. And then... I'm describing a process, I don't know that it always works like this, but I think it usually starts with this kind of opening and sense of being connected with others and compassion for others. And then at a certain point, there's this kind of flip or realization that, and maybe someone points it out or through a guided meditation, there's a kind of realization that, oh, if there's no separation, then I am equally deserving of love. And that's a, that's a vital part of healing for us. Clearly, addiction, one of its aspects is the aspect, of the disease of self-hatred. Um, there's hatred of my own feelings, sometimes hatred of my own thoughts, And the the action of 
abusing drugs or alcohol or any other destructive behavior like that. You know, just the term itself. You're not abusing drugs. You're abusing yourself. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious, you know. The drugs do not suffer, you know. (laughs) You're the one who's being abused. And so that behavior itself is an act of self-hatred. So there's a lot of work around self-compassion that's, you know, part of this process. You know, to call that, to call self-hatred a defect of character, I think is rather ungenerous. You know, uh, I don't think that self-hatred is a defect of character. I, can, I think it's a tragic mistake. And, you know, and we know these things come about through trauma, through conditioning, through behavior, through life experiences. You know, it all, all, you know, kind of accumulates. Some of us learn to hate ourselves very young. Some of us, it takes longer. But most of us at some point, you know, really... uh, have at least some element of real uh, disregard for ourselves. So this is one of the things that this practice opens up for us. And I think it's these types of things, you know, this kind of awareness and this kind of compassion, opening, making these kind of connections that really allow for both sustained recovery and sustained growth, sustained spiritual growth. Because the the program, the 12-step program, or any recovery program really requires a, an ongoing process. You, know, it, you can, you know, put the jug, plug in the jug or whatever, you know, and you can maybe maintain that physical sobriety, that physical recovery. But if there isn't this spiritual work going on, it's not going to be very happy. You know, well, some of the most tragic, tragic uh, actions are the, the, the suicide of the sober person. You know? And that happens more often than probably we would like to think. And that, I think, is very much about not being able to to grow, not being able to change, not being able to address these deeper issues. You know, the only step that's actually about addiction itself is step one. All the rest of it's about recovery. All the rest of it's about spiritual growth and transformation, self-examination, making amends, letting go, you know, going deeper into our spirituality, doing service. And that's because, you know, this disease is much more than the behavior, the addictive behavior. It goes much deeper than that. And and that's one of the reasons why I, I kind of scoff at these, uh, you know, when I see some researcher who's trying to find a drug 
to help people to stay, stop drinking. To me, that's a profound misunderstanding of the, the disease, a profound and, and dangerous misunderstanding of the disease. Has very little do to do with the disease. The reason people keep relapsing isn't because they haven't got the right medicine, you know. So, despite this phrase "defects of character," I I think it's important that we ha- that we do have some way of understanding the aspects of our behavior and our personality as well as our inner life, our mental habits uh, that are not helpful, that are destructive, that are dysfunctional, whatever you want to call them. Uh, as I say, you know, the, the problem, I mean, the defects and, and defects of character are, are both troublesome to me in in Buddhist terms, character seems more solid. You know, character sounds like something you have. And that doesn't really jibe with the idea that there isn't some self in the middle of all this and that there isn't something unchanging. You know, our, our we do have... Traits, but my understanding has now is that we have that rather than character, I think we have we have potentials, and that the that potential our potentials are that that our traits or qualities can manifest in positive or negative ways. My one example of this that kind of came to me in my own self-reflection has been sort of when I first started to meditate. I, I noticed how so much of my meditation was about fantasies, about things I would imagine that would things I, I hoped would make me happy in some way, and um, and I thought that that was a flaw in me. Eventually, I came to see that that tendency to make stuff up was also the thing that allowed me to write books and write music. And that, so that it could, when it's uh, uncontrolled, when it's just sort of run rampant, it's just like blah, 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 and then I went to Hawaii, and then I'll get, you know, I'll be a rock and roll star, and blah, blah, blah. You know, but when it's directed, then it becomes a creative force. So it's just an energy. It's not good or bad. It's not def- a defect until I misuse it. I think we all have these traits, you know. Uh, like if you're emotionally sensitive, that can be really destructive if you're just overwhelmed by everything. But it can be re- really valuable if you're. Uh, in the healing arts, and you can really pick up on people's feelings. You know, so again, it's how we channel these things. It isn't the the quality uh, itself, which is also why I sort of don't think so much about higher power and lower power. 
I just think there's powers. And then it's a question of how you use them and how they manifest. Uh, but sure, you know, we, we all have to look at uh, the, our behaviors and habit patterns that are, that are destructive and, and be ready to change them. Um, so that's, that's step six for now. Um, and we have a few minutes left if anybody has any um, comments or questions or reflections. Um, so for me, uh, six and seven, I always kind of struggled with uh, the whole defect and, and shortcoming thing. And, and what helped me along with it, I, I started to kind of, you know, call them spiritual guides. You know, they they helped kind of point to where, you know, I need to what I need to tend to. Yeah. And uh, and then also I, I got in this um, funk with six and seven, uh, using them as another thing to uh, beat myself over the head with, yeah. you know. And yeah. uh, when I started, and that that was that was per practice in a sense before I got into the, the to the Dharma. And uh, it, what really helped me with six and seven is when I got into the Dharma, and uh, I started to create space. For those parts of me, like you know, maybe, maybe selfishness, maybe, maybe anger, uh, uh, maybe even uh, hatred arising. Sometimes, like maybe there's room for for all parts of me here, mm-hmm. you know. And, and when I started to kind of create some space for those, um, you know, they it, it wasn't like I went to war with them anymore. Like yeah. they kind of now they're just kind of I think Ram Dass calls it like a little neuroses you know a little yeah. like little kind of character things you know right. I mean, they're not they're not like you know uh, um, I don't know just so driving yeah. and, uh, and and that's been huge you know that that's that's been a huge um, uh, you know gift and like I said because I, I I'm the kind of person that can you know when I was doing six and seven like you know I can judge myself for judging myself or judging myself or judging myself right. or hate myself for hating myself yeah. you know what I mean so yeah. so it was like it was like when I started to create some kind of some space there like you know like maybe even this maybe maybe even this mm-hmm. can be here right now maybe even this is like you know not not um saying that you know being self-centered or stepping up you know is okay but but maybe it, it, it's okay to, to, to arise and, and, and be there for a minute for me to tend to. Yeah. And, uh, and that helped. You know, like I said, I, I, I really struggled with, with six and seven. I remember, you know, praying, you know, constantly asking God to remove me, remove this anxiety, remove this fear. And right. one day it dawned on me, I'm like, I'm just reassuring myself that I'm not okay. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, you know, so uh, so there was a big shift when uh, and I'm so grateful for, you know, the work you've done to kind of set this path. And because and, it really kind of uh, changed my relationship to uh, to six and seven. It, yeah. it, it made it, uh, like I said, uh, um, I think what it was normally maybe intended for. But yeah. with uh, AA's kind of vocabulary, it was it, it kind of ruffled, ruffled me up a little yeah. bit. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, thank you. I, I know sometimes, you know, it sounds like there's going to be some kind of psychic surgery. You know, God's going to reach down and you're <laughs> yank out these defects of character. And it's like, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think the idea of 
you know, I'm, I'm an imperfect human being, and I accept that. I'm not going to feed those demons, but if I'm in a battle with them, that's just another defect of character, you know. <laughs> then it's just more violence. It's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, it's like right effort. It's that kind of balance or the middle way where I'm trying to, you know, improve. But, I mean, it's the same thing in meditation. You know, I try to meditate, but if I go into meditate and I'm going to get this, it just winds up being another struggle. And, and yet, at the same time, if I don't do anything, if I don't make any effort, or I just let my, you know, these qualities in me run rampant, yeah, that's not helpful either. And I, I think that's, that's, again, one of the things that makes Dharma practice more difficult than some sort of rule-bound or fundamentalist approach where you just do this, you can't do that, and this is wrong. I mean, it's more difficult because it's more real. (laughs) The fact is, usually when people try to follow rules like that, they wind up having a shadow, shadow behaviors, shadow emotions that are never dealt with. So it kind of, you know brings up that whole acceptance is the answer to my problems today. You know. Accept these qualities. It, and it's like the, the, the title of the book, Spirituality of Imperfection. You know. And, and I, you know, even when you started out, it, it's, you were kind of talking too about that it's, those things are also the things that are signals to us, guide, guides to, oh, this is where I'm creating suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I try to suppress them or ignore them, mm-hmm. then I don't have the opportunity to learn from them. Yeah. Or, or labeling, bad, labeling them bad yeah. or, or defected or something yeah. to that flavor, then it was like, get away. Like, yeah. you know, just kind of, I don't know, quickly change this. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. And that's, it's that phrase, we have ceased fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jack Cornfield talks about this same thing, stopping the war, he calls it. Yeah. yeah, it's a tricky thing. And, you know, in our culture, we do have this kind of culture of perfection, where you're supposed to have the perfect body and the perfect partner and the perfect kids. <laughs> Who's got that? You know, <laughs> anybody? Oh, you're raising your hand. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> The director used, which is um, sometimes we have to invite our demons into tea, which uh-huh. I, I, I like when I'm really caught up in that. Yeah. And then they can leave. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks for sharing, and uh, the party's over. <laughs> Thank you. Over here, we got a couple of hands there, Shane. Thanks. Um, you know, Bill W. wrote when speaking uh, about the question of atheism and agnosticism and the 12 steps that the 12 steps are suggestions only mm-hmm. and that if we were to insist on them, many people would not have come through the doors. Mm-hmm. I find, you know, as somebody who's been going to AA meetings for a really long time, and enjoying them, um, I like both meetings where people um, tend to have a more fundamentalist viewpoint of the 12 steps, but I also like atheist meetings. And atheist meeting actually got me into the program mm-hmm. originally. Um, 
but there is a um, when I talk about fundamentalism, there is a fundamentalist strain, and even among atheists, there's a fundamentalism <laughs> saying that. that people that have that that are God centric or you know um, not worth listening to or whatever. Um, but I, as you know, I sit here today listening to you know what you've been saying and what we're doing here. Um, you know, this question of a higher power transcends any type of form, whether it's Allah or Buddha or Jesus Christ, you know. That's all I have to say. Yeah. You, you reminded me that just completely off the subject, I don't know if any of you heard or saw the, the memorial for Muhammad Ali today. It happened that they had it on NPR, they were running it, and I just happened to be driving for... I had to go all the way into the East Bay and then all the way back out here. So I was listening for about an hour and a half. It was really, really amazing. And the one that really went wild was Michael Lerner, who is from Berkeley. And and he had the audience going crazy. Um, It was beautiful what he was saying. I mean, it was very political, but it was, you know, very values-based. And... uh, Anyway, um, if you get a chance to hear or see any of that, uh, you know, they had, you know, there was a lot of Muslims because Muhammad Ali was a Muslim. And, and I, listening to it, I just felt, I was so moved because I thought, you know, we have this madman, you know, out there preaching, you know, hatred. And here's somebody that, Americans love and admire and and all these Muslims are talking about him because he was one of them and people are I know there had to be a lot of Americans today going oh wait <laughs> hold on my Muslims I thought they were bad you know I thought they were all going to kill us so I that I'm hopeful that that may be an opening actually for some changes uh, in people's thinking it's very moving and they also had a Buddhist monk chanting too. So. Um, the first part of my question is what language does the word karma come from? And I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more. You were talking about how Buddhism and Hinduism have differing perspectives mm-hmm. on yeah. this word and what it is, yeah. this concept, and then also the concept of karma yoga. Okay. Uh, the word karma is Sanskrit, which is an ancient Indian ecclesiastical language. Uh, and it's, it's used today. So when you hear, so when you hear um, Hindus chanting, they're usually chanting in, in, uh, in Sanskrit. Um, the Actually, the the language of the earliest Buddhist teachings is not Sanskrit, but something very similar to Sanskrit, which is Pali, P-A-L-I. So the Theravada Buddhism, which is what this center arises out of, we're not exactly a Theravada center, but that's our roots. Um, the word is Kama, K-A-M-M-A. There's no R in it. Um, it's probably not written in English. Right. And, and there are many terms in, um, in Buddhism and in, the, in, the, you know, in those ancient languages 
for which there is no literal translation in English because they had concepts that we don't have. As far as the difference between Buddhism and Hinduism, at the time of the Buddha, the Hinduism didn't exist, but, but the religion, the kind of existing religion was Brahmanism. And uh, it was very ritualistic and they didn't really understand, the Brahmin priests didn't really understand the symbolism of their rituals and the Buddha kind of explained the symbolism to them or he made, he brought out some poetic kind of symbolism out of a lot of their rituals. But over time, Brahmanism evolved into Hinduism, which is much more theistic than Buddhism, although it's kind of polytheistic. So you have, you know, Krishna, uh, you know, Rama, Brahma, Vishnu. Uh, who's the? Who's the creator, destroyer? Shiva. Shiva. So. It's, it's a beautiful, very uh, devotional uh, religion, but it's, it, it's so uh, m- sort of polymorphous that it, it's hard to even point to. Uh, all, there are many different kind of types of Hinduism. They're just very, uh, just widely kind of uh, different, it seems to me. In, in my knowledge, I'm not, you know, uh, a scholar by any means in that. Um, Buddhism has... So Hinduism doesn't really have like a uh, founder in the way that Christianity does and, and uh, Islam does and Buddhism does. So Buddhism, theoretically, it all goes back to the Buddha and starts from there and uh, you know, is founded in very specific teachings. Fundamentally, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are kind of the core teachings, which I don't have time to explain right now, but that's the stuff to look for. Um, was there one other question? Karma Yoga. Karma Yoga. So karma means action. Yoga is uh, union. But karma yoga refers to um, your work being spiritually motivated, essentially. So, uh, so and, it's, and maybe in a casual sense, it's like if you're at a yoga center and somebody says, I'm going to go do the dishes, that's my karma yoga. It's like my, you know, I have to do this job, but I'm going to try to bring a spiritual intention to it. So I'm keeping it within my spiritual practice, even though it looks like I'm just doing this mundane thing. Because the word karma means action, so it's just like to 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 live and to act in your in your life in a spiritually uh, guided way within with spiritual principles. Okay, uh, I think we're out of time. I don't want to keep people late, so um, I will be here for a few minutes. Uh, if someone wants, to, if anyone wants to come up and ask another question, but let's just. Uh, Gather ourselves physically and mentally again for one moment, just um, for some reflection. And I think uh, a starting point of our closing, I think, really should be just a 
a sense of gratitude for all the people, all the effort, all the resources that went into creating this beautiful new place, new space. It already has a a feeling of quiet and spiritual energy, if you can sense that. Now just to share that appreciation with each other because this hall, if it's empty, has no meaning. So appreciating yourself and all those who are here tonight. Radiating loving kindness and compassion out to all beings. All beings seek happiness and freedom and peace. May all beings be free from suffering. So if you've been coming to Spirit Rock for a while, you know that typically you would be asked to give something as Donna for the teachers and the uh, organization has decided to um, take to no longer ask for, pe- for Donna from people. So, um, you know, I think there's a loss in that, but I also see that it makes it simpler for people. And as I used to say, they get you coming and going. Now they just get you coming. So there is that. So the Donna is, oh yeah, I, I still get compensated. Um, I will be back here next month. I'm also in Berkeley on the fourth Tuesday. If you're interested in, in seeing my calendar for future retreats and workshops and classes, KevinGriffin.net is my website. You can also always contact me through there. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.